welcome back to another episode of the Shifting Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, and I am sitting here in my basement studio, as I have been for the last several episodes. The big difference is that I don't have a fresh episode for you this week. To be quite honest, I didn't even reach out to anyone uh, to invite them on the show uh, for this week because I've been struggling uh, with depression, anxiety, and just... um, burnout um for sure you know i'm putting in 14 hour days um pretty much seven days a week i get a half day off every now and again but um you know unfortunately it's the only thing i can do at the moment to keep um you know business moving forward and keep it alive so um hopefully this isn't forever but it's been rough on my psyche lately and so um i decided that rather than kind of force myself to try to um put together an interview um, or reach out to some folks um, when my heart wasn't in it, um, that I would repost an interview that I did with um, another podcast just a few weeks into quarantine here in the United States. Um, The host is Thomas Dean or Tom Dean. Um, It's called Sipping with Psalms. And uh, you can find the podcast at sippingwithpsalms.com. I'm sure he's on all the uh, other podcast platforms as well. Um, Tom's been a listener of the show for years. We've gotten to know each other a little bit um, through direct messaging on Instagram. Um, and obviously that, that that invitation stands to anybody. If you ever have a question, I'm, I'm very reachable through our uh, Instagram account at Shift Drink Podcast. But anyhow, um, you know, we started chatting just a little bit uh, several years ago. Um, and in recent months, we've kind of helped each other set up uh, recording devices and, and to be able to do remotes and all of that. And so um, I do much appreciate the help that he's lent me when it came to having to do remote interviews, which we had not done at all on Shift Drink until um, the quarantine. So uh, he invited me on his show to kind of talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the restaurant industry, the bar industry. We chatted, chatted a little bit about you know, comic books, graphic novels, um, you know, you name it. it. It was just a fun conversation. I always find it interesting to be a guest on someone else's podcast because um, for those that are new to the show, um, I have a background in journalism and it's always interesting to uh, listen to other interviewers and, and, you know, get tips on how they uh, draw information out and really get some good, interesting questions. And I try to do that on this show. Uh, Sometimes I fail and usually it's a direct correlation with how much alcohol I've had during the show. But anyhow, I recommend that everybody kind of check out Sipping with Psalms. Uh, Again, it should be out there everywhere. Uh, I should have had that information handy before I sat down this evening, but um, I know that, you know, his website is sippingwithsoms.com uh, it's informative it's very cool they talk a lot about wine and uh, the beverage industry as well uh, he's on a different side of the business than I am so uh, without further ado here is an interview that I did um, just a few weeks into quarantine with Thomas Dean of Sipping with Psalms. Uh I'll be back at it I hope uh, in a few weeks here I just kind of got to get my uh, mind focus, situated, and uh, shake off some of this burnout. So without further ado, here's our episode. Welcome to uh, the coolest episode of Sipping with Sommeliers and Suppliers. I have uh, on the other side of the mic via Skype, uh, Mr. Edward Rudisell from the Shift Drink podcast, as well as a, uh, I don't even know how to talk about anymore. Uh, You've got a legendary background in, in Indianapolis. Uh, Siam Square, Black Market, Rook, Inferno Room, uh, partner in 
Thunderbird. And right now, you just coined a new trademark with me earlier, the Shift Show. Uh, uh, yeah. Or Shift working your butt off. Like, uh, what's your landscape looking like these days currently? Well, I, I think it might be a stretch to call him Legend of Indie, but, I mean, we're a small market just like anybody. You know, we all know each other. And, I mean, I've really only been seriously interested in, in like, real food. Like, you know, I mean, I came up in sports bars, so that wasn't even on my radar until, you know, 14 years ago, 15 years ago. But um, I don't know, man. It's bleak. I mean, the city, the whole industry is bleak right now. So we'll see what, what comes out of it. But, I mean, I think small markets are, are definitely going to be hurt really badly by by uh, this the closure and the shelter-in-place orders from all the states because we just – by sheer um, percentages, we just don't have as many – you know, kind of farm to table places and, and that are setting the scene, you know, it, it's easier to knock out in one fell swoop, you know, the whole, right. the whole scene. And so it's, it's scary, man. It's scary times. I saw a uh, statistic earlier that said 67% of unemployment claims are restaurant industry, but only 9% of payouts are going there. And I assume a lot of that is just the lack of restaurants being able to lobby for themselves, right? It's, a million voices instead of the one voice that's easy to hear and cut through in Washington. Um, on a podcast you did a while back, you had an intro talking about your current situation. It was really touching, which is really why I wanted to reach out to you about this, is that uh, it's going to change the entire landscape. But <clears throat> you you being a, a tiki guy and being a, a guy that started off with, from the you know articles I've read and from what I know, starting off with a restaurant with 700 bucks in your account, uh, I think you're the guy for growth. You know, you're the guy that's gonna figure out know, some man. way. I mean, we're what? This is the twelfth year of that place being open. Um, yeah, the day we opened, we had seven hundred bucks left. That's right. That was um, that's goes against everything you learn about opening a business. You know, they say <laughs> yeah. make sure you have. But you know, I mean, keep in mind, like we opened two weeks after Lehman Brothers failed. I mean, what were we gonna do? Wait until everything bounced back? It would have been years. You know. So we didn't really have a choice. We had spent our life savings to open the place. We, we couldn't control, you know, the housing market completely collapsing um, two weeks prior to our restaurant. I mean, it obviously started several months before that. But, um, yeah, Lehman Brothers was kind of that nail in the coffin. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's tough. And that's why I've tried to be very outspoken about it online. And I know it scared a lot of my employees. And, it's, um, and I've also been accused of being very pessimistic but, you know, from the get-go, I said, you know, they're going to screw us out of some, this money somehow. And they're going to set it up so that the banks, you know, get theirs. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, you know, they made what – I saw a statistic today. I can't remember what dollar amount they made in processing all these loans. But it's like $10 billion or something really ridiculous. And, you know, I mean, like I said, we opened in the housing crisis. So we didn't learn a damn thing. It doesn't seem, you know, that the banks got theirs. The big boys got their money and the little guys get screwed. You know, we, we subsidized the bailouts of the banks 12 years ago or not even, you know, well, yeah, 12 years ago. And uh, and now we're kind of back in a situation where we need the bailout, but we're not going to get it. Not unless the banks, you know, get their, get their slice. And it is, I, I don't know what the fix is, man. <laughs> you know, like I wish I did. I, I've got things that I know that would help us and I think that would make sense. But, you know, I, I'm not... Uh, I don't have the ear of, of Washington politicians. So. Well, when the, 
earlier in the day, I had sent you kind of an outline of some things that I wanted to talk about with you. And one of the things that you brought up is, have you ever read DMZ? Right. We're just kind of like talking about revolution starting in, a, you know, Manhattan's the, you know, the demilitarized zone. And it's talking about basically a civil war almost within the United States. And uh, right. that doesn't seem as dystopian and futuristic anymore. It that doesn't, seems- because even in that, it, it was um, kind of the, the, the kind of working class blue collar. They call it the free states of America, which is kind of like the. The Limbaugh America is really essentially who is being represented in, in that graphic novel or by the free states of America. And then the rest of it was the kind of um, more structured bureaucratic military. So, you know, there wasn't really it wasn't very hopeful on either side. But um, and then a, a journalist trying to, to get by in the DMZ, which was Manhattan and all the different factions operating there. And it just seems like we're edging closer and closer to that reality with the divisiveness um, in this country between political views and, you know, I, I, I don't know how political you get on your show, but it's just, I, I don't know how anybody can, in, in the good faith, look at some of these policies coming out of Washington and say, yes, that completely has my support. You know, it's just, but people do, and people are, you know, putting their flagpole into it and saying, you know, this is where I'm going to stand and, you know, everything, we'll burn it all to the ground on principle and, that's scary. It's, it's, well, it's quite scary. You're you're at episode 93. I'm at episode 17. So I'm going to follow your lead and we can get as political as you want, man, because I think <laughs> that's kind of engaging and fun. Um, well, like I said, like I've been doing that online, like I, I'm, I'm forcing myself to do that. And I know that it scared uh, uh, some people, you know, that work for me because we haven't been in that close of contact um, since we pretty much made the decision to like close and within two hours we will close. So a lot of those folks I haven't seen at all. We kind of had to wrap up that day and pickle what we could, freeze what we could and get the hell out. So, but, you know, I don't want to be chicken little and I don't want to be, you know, the pessimist, but the reality is that it's pretty bleak. And if, if everybody's afraid to lose face, then the real, the, the reality of the situation isn't going to be told. And that's what I fear is that we all want to like, look like, the guys that have, you know, eight months of rent, you know, in the bank and we've got deep pocketed investors ready to throw money at us. And the reality is that none of us have any of those things. And we're all edging close to, you know, red if we're not already in the red. And it sucks to admit that in front of your peers, you know, especially when, like you said, you're seen as a successful uh, business person. But, you know, uh, the reality is that none of us are in, in good shape right now. And I'm seeing people say things differently online than what they tell me on the phone, you know, and I'm not like, I get it. You know, I don't want to say, Hey, we're hurting either <laughs> because you know, you kind of not only lose face, but, um, it, it's embarrassing, but you know, if we all do that, we're going to, we're going to, um, our pride's going to put us in the ground. <laughs> Yeah, uh, hubris uh, traditionally doesn't do real well. My yeah. my wife, who's sitting here listening to me, is Greek, and if there's one thing dating and marrying a Greek has taught me, is hubris is just not good. It's not a yeah. good thing. Um, and the parallels between what's going on right now and what happened with 1918, with what was unfortunately called the Spanish flu, are pretty ridiculous, right? Even uh, Harding yeah. on his 20, you know, on his 1920, his slogan was a return to normalcy. And, That's uh, crazy. I, I, now I, we're talking about new normal all the time, yeah. right? Uh, 
I think the new normal is a little bit to tie back into that DMC talk. I think the new normal is going to need to be a revolution of compassion because hearing Danny Meyer give back the money he got for Shake Shack made me jump for joy and go goo-goo for that guy even more so than already. Yeah, I like Danny Meyer, and I I think he's a great voice and leader for us, you know, in the industry. I don't know where I stand opinion-wise and all that, but um, he's a great businessman. I... um, I mean, without him, the industry probably wouldn't exist as it does as far as, like, the upscale dining. Um, I guess that's one thing, you know, sorry to, like, hijack that, that line of reasoning or, or conversation, but, um, you know, the, the restaurant panel that's supposed to be advising the administration is kind of a bummer. <laughs> you know, there's, like, Jean-Georges, you know, Thomas Keller, like, Daniel Boulud, um, somebody else. And it's, like, when's the last time those guys, like you know, really scrapped for an extra hundred bucks in the account. And not to say that they've never done that, but you have four, you know, Michelin star chefs with multiple, multiple, multiple locations. Um, they're playing a different ball game than we are. And yeah, I, it would have been real cool to, to it, it would have been a real opportunity to get people involved that just own a pizzeria down, you know, in, right. in New York or, or whatever. And so I, I don't know. I think it was a missed opportunity, but hell, that's a long list of opportunities that have been missed. Yeah, that that's uh, about 14 other episodes. That's probably a different view for a podcast than kind of keeping yeah. it on spirits but, and stuff like that. But like you said, yeah, the parallels are pretty scary. Um, hopefully, I mean, there's obviously a lot of different situations uh, or, or different conditions um, in our situation. Uh, we're not coming off of the biggest war the world's ever seen. So, I mean, and nor is... So I studied pretty extensively German history um, from Bismarck to like 45 uh, in college. And so, you know, looking at like kind of the the penalties imposed on Germany and the rise of Hitler and all that, like it was it was just such a twisted up period for the whole world and power grab and money grab. And yeah, I don't know. I don't think any of us want to go back to the 20s, certainly not with the, the virus situation that we've got going on and nor prohibition for that matter, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, but, okay, yeah. No, no, I mean, I, I, go ahead. So to, to literally follow up with that line of thinking, the 1920s, the roaring 20s, uh, a lot of people think of it as this big party. A lot of people are still suffering. The thing that made it the decade of decadence was the Dawes plan where the vice president said, Let's have Wall Street pay the reparations for Germany, and then that helped the entire world economy, and now we saw this decadence. And now Wall Street is saying, how much more money can we funnel into ourselves, right? Let's buy back our stocks. Let's do these other things that we're hearing about. Um, I saw a really funny uh, meme today, which I'm sure the amount of people seeing memes now has skyrocketed since we're all at, you know, on our phones (laughs) all the time now. But the meme was basically saying, you know, if the airlines are saying we're all in this together, where were you when my bag was 51 pounds? <laughs> right. You know, yeah. Like, it, it just isn't it's not. landing. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, we are all in it together, but it's the information overload. And, you know, I have a degree in journalism and I am a news junkie. But I'll tell you what, this administration secured me of that because the, the news cycle is just kind of just so repetitive. And so and my wife has now become a news junkie. And so I'm hearing like the COVID stuff literally from before I wake up because she's turns her phone on in bed and it wakes me up. She's right now 
directly above me in another room. Um, I can hear the television. You know, she's listening to CNN. And it's just like, it's numbing, man. And I remember just after 9-11, it was like this for eight months until the DC sniper took over the news cycle. It was 9-11, like 24 hours a day. And this time around, it's really hitting my emotional health, you know, more so than it did then. Um, of course, we were much younger in 2001. But, you know, this time around, it's just, it's really, really hard. And like we said, you know, all the divisiveness in the country. And it's just, it's depressive. It's depressing. You know, it, because we've kind of got our niche in the restaurant industry that we're worried about. And it's become chillingly clear that most of the country doesn't really realize what's going on in the hospitality industry. So it's, it's scary. And so I try to turn it off. Today was my first day of trying to stay away from social media. All I did was answer alerts and private messages and it felt pretty decent, <laughs> you know? I, I mean, I had a new episode drop today, so I had, to, I had to get on there for that, but I'm gonna try to stay away from the memes I, I, and all that. <laughs> I'm gonna brave the, the market tomorrow to go get a bottle of Fernet to make sure that I can listen to it in, in correct fashion, so. Um, that was a fun one. Yeah, that she's that that's she's definitely a very hospitable person from the people I know that have met her. It's a, sounds pretty awesome. The the thing that I think you're going to bounce back. I know you maybe don't have the answer now, but from listening to your podcast for over a year, from learning, you know, from you and Ed and from just everything that you've done, maybe you don't have the idea now, but the amount of parallels with this, I think the answer is has maybe already been provided. Right. There was prohibition after the roaring 20s. Uh -huh. Then there was what created from the prohibition rum running and then Tiki. Right. And then all of a sudden we're starting to find ways to get back on our feet. And it's if so many things are just repetitive right now um, and you were a guy that kind of came up on your own bootstraps and are paying attention. I think you're going to be fine. I really hope, though, that some I mean, I'm bullish on the economy. I'm bullish on the American like, economy and market in general. Everything bounces back. It's just a matter of timing. I'm young enough now that I don't have to worry about that in the long term. Um, but, you know, over the next five years, you know, it's this business takes a pretty big toll on your body physically. And so, you know, <laughs> if we have to wait, you know, another eight years to see to see everything, you know, level out, it's a little that's it's daunting, to say the least. But we're not going anywhere. We've I mean, we literally had just signed on two months prior to this happening uh, to an expansion for the Inferno Room. So we are actually in the middle using the time or my business partner Chris is using the time to do demo and construction in an additional space well, um, without you know I don't want to take the surprise away from anybody but you know that's exciting man what what's what's going on what are you kind of looking to expand there did you have more skulls that didn't fit in no. or that you needed to roll in um it was circumstance it wasn't like it was a it was a number of things and so it, it met a lot of needs. One of the issues um, in the Midwest, and you're in kind of the same area, so you know, as soon as the temperature hits 70 degrees, everybody wants to sit outside. And if you don't have a patio, you lose business. And obviously, patios are kind of anathema um, to tiki bars because, you know, you can't escape if you're staring at the traffic walking by. But we felt like there was an opportunity there. So there was a coffee shop next to us that had this really beautiful courtyard um, and they didn't last long. I think they were there for maybe six months, seven months. They closed. It's a pretty small space. It's like a thousand square feet. Um, has a little coffee bar in there. 
and then it has that courtyard. And so we, I don't think we have an official name for it, but we keep calling it the outpost. So I think it's probably going to end up getting called the outpost at the Inferno Room because it will be connected. We have to actually like punch through a wall. The buildings are technically separate um, by 32 inches. So we have to build a connector. Um, okay. But there, that front bar will kind of serve as its own entity, but it's, it's still be connected. And it's almost like a showroom and, you know, the entry room or whatever, the smaller club. So it gives us a chance to have that other side of Tiki that we don't represent inside the main room or what will be the main room, uh, which is the Inferno room. And that's the, the kind of more divey, like punk rock, psychobilly edge of Tiki. Um, they, where you see that kind of Venn diagram meet in the middle where sure um, where Miss so, Swizzle Stick is right and so yeah. you get to have a little bit of representation like that so I mean we're talking like a jukebox with some like fun punk and, and surf and stuff like that in there um, that's going to be tricky because the rooms will be joined so we have to figure out how to do some sound control but um, it'll definitely be a little more cobbled together and uh, less Trader Vic style and more you know auto shrunken head style so, hey. um, and it gives us access to that patio. So it gives us, I think it'll appeal to the crowd that doesn't necessarily want to have that like more elegant evening out. I mean, we never saw ourselves as that and we still don't see ourselves as that in, uh, at the Inferno room, but it, we've noticed that it's definitely become the more like the weekend spot. And so during the week it's, it's a stretch. And so this would allow us to kind of appeal to a wider, um, audience on top of, you know, if it just comes to be that. Everybody wants to sit at the outpost on Mondays and Tuesdays that we wouldn't even necessarily have to open the main room. So, yeah, that's that's the idea and allows us to show a different side of ourselves. Um, so it, it's it's fun. It's. I think a little bit more nerve wracking and then it started out, it started out as pretty exciting. We were a little nervous about adding to our rent so significantly, uh, but. Now we're really concerned about it. <laughs> well, everyone's hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizer and masks. I haven't heard about anyone hoarding, you know, lime juice. So the amount of people that are going to come out of this thing with scurvy, you're going to be right there, ready to take care of it, man. <laughs> right. You're going to be right It'll there. Be fun, Here's man. your tea I mean, punch, fucker. I wish I had more time to be over there. Um, in the beginning months, I was over there quite a lot, but um, we ended up kind of doing an uh, entire staff flip over um, at our Thai restaurant, which started requiring my attention kind of open to close every day. And that was from February of 2019. And then in July, we decided we we're going to do a total renovation. So we started that in late August. And then we just went to Asia for five weeks. Um, and when we came back, yeah, and it was like a whole new concept when we came back because we switched over to a quick service model. Um, so then I had to be there for that, and then COVID nineteen hit. So like I've I've been largely absent, you know, from the inferno room, other than just kind of popping my head over, hanging out with Chris for a minute, and you know, I'm still involved in decisions, obviously that we make business wise and tastings and all that stuff. But the day to day operations are definitely Chris, one hundred percent. Well, you've got a good team around you, which is really what you need when you're kind of going through, you know, what you're going through right now. Having all the people that you've interviewed and having the outreach and the the notoriety and the fame that you do, how many people? <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I'm literally looking at a picture of you here on the Indianapolis Monthly, an article from 2018 with your, you know, 
holding a bottle of four square in your mugs and everything. It's pretty awesome. I will have to um, say, man, I'm going to give a shout out to Jeff Rabel for that. He was the one that, that contacted me. He had been tasked with writing a um, personality profile and those are kind of fun to do, but they're, they're hard to do well. It's one of the first things that we learn in journalism school because it's, you know, you don't have to go find out a bunch of like, you don't have to interview a bunch of politicians about, uh, you know, volatile issues or anything like that. And so it's a little bit more puff piece. Um, but he did such a fantastic job. Like I'm reading that. I'm like, yeah, this guy sounds cool. Like, fuck, that's me. Like yeah. he just, <laughs> he, he did a fantastic job, man. I really, really, I never hate, I, or I never like reading about myself. Um, I try to avoid it, but I read that because it was such a long form piece and he's actually now working for Apple. I think he moved out uh, to California and he got a job writing with Apple News. Um, but he's he was a great guy. I, I, I didn't know him prior to the interview, but we stayed in contact afterwards and just just a fun guy. And yeah, it was it was neat. He definitely makes me sound cooler than I am. But I mean, he did kind of capture, I guess, my path. Well, you and it, it, I think the path, the trajectory, and then also your buddy Ed certainly does not. I mean, um, Arthur does not. Um, hold back and and pouring you know your <laughs> niceness uh ed crashes the stereotypes by just being genuine so my question really kind of is with a quote like that of being genuine of having the outreach that you have with all the people you've done city of you know chamber of commerce to nick ferris with rum fire how many people have come to you other than me saying hey do you have a direction and are you getting tired of that happening yet uh no not really i mean you mean as, as, far, as far as like my direction in the business, like what I'm like, trying to accomplish? What's the blueprint? Or, How the hell do we get out of this thing? Yeah. I, um, no, I, I, I wouldn't say no. There are a few people, but I think everybody's kind of scrambling with no direction. So yeah, that's a tough question to answer. I don't know if I have an answer for that. Um, what? No answer is a good brain, answer. My brain gets picked on a number of things. Um, are you referring to the current situation or just kind of in general in the industry? I think uh, I'm really sick of hearing people say the new normal because uh, yeah. everyone's new normal is not normal. For right. me, restaurants, new normal is 100% occupancy. Yeah. So our day-to-day lives, the people that we're, we see outside of the biz, they may be a new normal in three months. Restaurants, yeah, I don't know. what we're, I mean, That's the thing, right? And that's the, the why we're all kind of on edge is because they're – like you said, there is no new normal for us. We don't know what it is. We haven't been given any guidance, um, and we're really looking. This is the first time that I can really recall in my like restaurant career where I have to look to the government for assistance and guidance. Um, you know, obviously we all utilize the SBA as much as we can and things like that. But um, at that point, you know, you're you're showing pretty clear plans, and here's what we're going to do with the money, and here's how we're going to uh, implement our our you know, business plan. And right now, you know, everything falls away, right? Um, the PPP loans, you know, which we're all begging for, but one issue that hasn't really been raised often enough is that these aren't really ideal loans for us. You know, um, the bulk of our expenses aren't payroll. And so 75% of those PPP loans have to be used for payroll um, and similar expenses. And you know, if you're running a, a decent restaurant operation, you're running, you know, 22 to 25% labor. If you're running fine dining, maybe a little bit more than that, but you're certainly not running 75%. And so it leaves you very little, you know, the 
So on a $100,000 loan, you can use $25,000 of that for other expenses like rent, utilities, et cetera. Hell, that's, a, you know, a month of rent and sales tax, boom, that's out, that's gone. So, you know, we're kind of begging for something that's not entirely helpful <laughs> in the first place. Um, and it, it leaves us very confused. Um, you know, we focus a lot of attention on these things and it's, you know, hopefully it's not a waste of time. Um, I, although, you know, I, we haven't heard anything back whatsoever for about our PPP loans, uh, or our idle loans for that matter. So we're hoping, but we're kind of planning for the worst in case, you know, that situation arises. Luckily we're pretty conservative, um, with our spending and we tried to run a pretty tight operation. And so we don't take on a lot of debt and haven't taken on a lot of debt. So it leaves us with very few people to answer to um, if worst case scenario comes to pass. So, uh, and that's not a situation that a lot of people can even feasibly be in. You know, I, I can't even wrap my head around being a restaurateur in New York. I, I just don't, Right. I, I, how do you do it with rent being what it is? I mean, you know, we're paying a quarter or maybe a fifth of what they're paying. And so, and it's not like their, their cocktails cost five times the same, you know, I mean, you go to New York, I mean, realistically a cocktail should cost you 60 bucks, you right. know? Um, and so that's, I don't know that, that really, it amazes me that anybody can thrive in that market or, um, or even if they are thriving or if they're getting by, I don't, I don't know. You know, again, most of us don't speak numbers with each other all that much, but that's that's the thing that in Delaware, the law in Delaware, that our governor has been relatively helpful, and we've had a successful flattening of our curve for the most part. But the law in Delaware, when he opened up to restaurants, is that only forty percent of your bill take home from a restaurant can be liquor. So if they he made everyone that had a restaurant license is now can sell retail. Basically, they can all sell to go. In Delaware, it's working. People have shifted their models. They're saying we're not going to do our average number markup like we did in a restaurant to help right. offset other expenses. In Pennsylvania, our border state, um, the state closed. So restaurants are stuck saying, like, what are we going to do? We don't – we know that people, when we could provide a service, would pay this because we're providing a service, making an experience. If you're drinking this at home – the markup we're asking is unfair. We want to buy cheaper stuff, but they couldn't because the state had closed everything. Wow. It's, uh, every single situation is going to be so different. I don't think there's a way to come out of it other there, than there isn't. I mean, there really isn't. They, you know, it's a, and that's the kind of mire that we're, or the, the situation that we're mired in is that it, the answer is different for everyone. I mean, you know, Danny Meyer, he's got different solutions and needs different solutions than I do. I mean, he's expanding. He's got a public company. I don't necessarily think that he should be grabbing PPP loans, you know, but, um, you know, it, it just sucks when the small places out there like us could use 40 grand, 50 grand. And that puts us back, you know, that writes the ship. And, you know, you get these big companies like Ruth Chris taking $20 million. I'm like, well, that's, that could have helped that ton of places like mine. Right. You know? And I don't know, you know, I, I think what I've talked about and, it seems like a solution that would work for a lot of people because it seems the the biggest conversations are happening around retail and hospitality. Those are the ones that got hurt the worst, right? Right. And 
what makes sense to me, at least as a start, not as a, as an entire solution. And I guess it wouldn't work in every state, but it would certainly, I think, help out in a lot in Indiana. Um, is a sales and food and beverage tax holiday. Um, and if you've already, you know, like whatever, say February, March, April, sales tax, you know, whatever those numbers would be or what they were, if you paid them already, then you would be available for, or you would be um, eligible for a grant up to that amount. Uh, if you haven't paid them because you didn't have money in your account, which if you find one of my restaurants in that situation where, you know, you know you're always spending next week's money. So right. um, that would help a lot because um, those are pretty big figures. And it, it would also apply to everyone in a very fair manner um, because it's a set percent. So if Ruth Chris that does, you know, whatever, $500,000 in a month or maybe in a week, I don't know what the hell they do. But, you know, it would obviously it would it would help them in the same amount that it would help somebody like us that doesn't do nearly that much. So I, I don't know. I think it would be a fair way to apply it, at least as a start. I mean, obviously, sales taxes aren't the same across the board in every state. Um, but I think it would be a way for state governments to to start helping the small businesses locally and then would be, you know, in my head. None, I, again, I don't know how this stuff works politically, but it would make sense that that funnels all of the need to one place, right? So then the state would then go to the federal government for the disaster loan assistance rather than, you know, 8,000 small businesses, you know, we go to the state, then the state takes it all on and then they go with one sum to the fed. But I don't know, that makes sense to me, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't solve the issue because, you know, we're talking about much smaller numbers, but that's a pretty big expense that we all have all retail businesses and all restaurants have to pay that. So unless you're in a, you know, sales tax free state. (laughs) Like like Delaware, but like Delaware, right? <laughs> uh, I I think that's a terrific idea. That seeing the amount of governors stepping up and doing things for their states has been really almost to me uplifting. I like seeing or my governor more often and hearing in in that direction. I think pretty, in Indy, I'm pretty left. Um, um, I lean very hard left, very very liberal, and we come over. I'm in a very red state. Not only that, uh, the state that gave us Mike Pence. And so our current governor was the one that got the job after Pence stepped away to become the vice president. And I will tell you, he's done a pretty good job during this. Um, he has taken no crap when they tried to march on his, you know, residence a couple of days ago to reopen the state. He wasn't having it. Um, right. And so it, it was pretty cool to see. And that speaks to what you were talking about earlier, kind of this, you know, culture of cooperation and compassion that needs to come out of this because, like I said, he's typically not somebody that, I mean, he's definitely not somebody I would have voted for. Um, he backed policies that I don't agree with, but I think that he's handled this situation very, very well. That's he hasn't Look broken up. new grounds, but he hasn't fucked anything up. So that's the new normal. Just don't fuck stuff up. <laughs> or legalize weed, you know, yeah. and then use the taxes from that. And then boom, uh, there's your new guys are all solvent. All that's a big issue in Indiana. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's one that we definitely disagree on. Not that the governor cares what my opinion is, but the, yeah, that's where you get into the, the just kind of false narrative of the gateway drugs and the, the, you know, the hard Christian right being against it and all that. And, you know, we're surrounded by states where it's legal in some way, shape or form, Illinois and Michigan um, with, you know, recreational. And so I think it's inevitable. Um, I've been a big advocate. I'm not a big smoker. Um, That's one misconception. I talk about it a lot, but um, I get high real easy. (laughs) 
But well, I think it's topical because it's 422. We're, you know, two yeah, days late. You right. Know? But it's um, it would be because when we look at how much tax revenue has come into the states that they've you know tackled it, not only that, we now have the benefit of, gosh, what year did Colorado legalize? I mean, night or recreational 2014. Is that right? 2014 has it been five years, six years. It's been a while now. Oh, yeah. And, and so like, there's, there's now we have there's been enough mistakes made now that we kind of can look back and and look at the template for how to do it and implement it in a successful manner. So I don't know. I think I'm part of it or, or was part of an investment network <laughs> don't have much investments going on anymore. Um, and the CEO um, and it was a cannabis centric um, angel investment network called Arcview Group. And the CEO, Troy Dayton, always said, you know, eh, who would have thought 30 years ago um, that we'd be where we are now? But um, it wasn't impossible then, and it's not inevitable now. Um, you know, it, it feels like it's inevitable, but it's not. There's definitely still a lot of people and a lot of misinformation out there. So, Well, there's some states that are viewing the dispensaries as essential business. So while restaurants in those states are suffering, weed is an essential business. Go ahead and go on out and get it. Just stand six feet apart from each other. So. Yeah. Oh, they're hurting. I know. I know several people in the in the uh, industry. Obviously, um, just due to my connections and, and the investment network. And uh, uh, actually, a good friend of mine that I went to high school with owns uh, one of the the most prominent um, dispensaries in San Francisco. And he's also got. Um, I don't know what he does. He's got land, and he works with wineries in Sonoma as well. Um, and he's. I talked to him a couple weeks ago and like they're, they're getting hurt pretty bad. I mean, sales are down significantly and this is going to be a call, I think for the dispensary side and, and legal cannabis um, markets as well as, as restaurants. Yeah. I, there's a lot of things that I think the water right now of, of frustration is very high. Eventually it's going to go down. It's going to level off. We'll see what's left and how we rebuild ourselves. And I think with your outreach and the things that you've already done, you're going to come out ahead of this, and I really appreciate your time. Um, I know you had a 12-hour day today. That's got to be fun to go from running a, a cool empire and a podcast you know, legacy to now working a 12-hour shift in a restaurant. has got to be changing. Mm, I mean, I am always, I've always been a workaholic, well, <laughs> since my mid-20s. I was a pretty lazy like teenager when I was started, started in this business, but um, I, I don't mind putting in the hours, but... I'm definitely doing the, the more physical work now than I was doing before where it kind of had become a lot more administrative. So yeah, it's, it's taxing, but you know, this is what we got to do to come out the other side, you know, it's put your nose to the grindstone. And we were lucky enough, like I said, to be situated that we can do that at my Thai restaurant, you know, because we're doing curbside, but we already kind of had that infrastructure in place. Um, when, we, after we remodeled at the end of last year, that was a lucky coincidence. So you know, I'm definitely lucky that we still kind of have a a path to be able to stay open, you know, and and keep a, a handful of employees paid. There's there's only a couple of them left now, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I think in the long term, I'm optimistic. I'm not sure what it's going to look like on the other side, but you know, we're a pretty creative bunch in the restaurant industry. So I mean, you've talked about this empire, but I mean, none, nothing of this shit was by design, man. All of it was just like, hey, let's open this because that'd be neat. And then before you know it, your name's on a contract and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> we've done it now. 
So <laughs> I, I think if it wasn't by design the first time, you're going to be able to find your way back to that uh, that success again. Yeah. I, I know mean, it's frustrating. It's the same situation. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show. It's like that was just the bullshit three in the morning conversation in Miami, like Arthur and I on a patio. And, you know, within two months, we had our first episode up. So, well, yeah, a few months. I don't know. Yeah. It was a little while. It's a. Uh... He, he, he's quite a character. I'm, I'm, I, we wonder what he's up to these days, but he's probably up to his eyeballs and alligators. Or, you know what? Or tigers no. or... So he's actually, um, he has taken a position. Well, right now, obviously, he's not working. Um, but so he's taken a position as the sommelier at the Columbia Club, which is a private club for quite wealthy folks in the center of Indianapolis. And so he's managing their whole wine program. Um, it's a pretty... I don't want to say cushy gig because I don't know. I have no idea, but it seems like it would be like he's got pretty much unlimited funds, you know, for the for the wine list as long as, you know, he, as long as he can move it. And if there's anybody that can move it, it's him. You know, he spent so yeah. much of his life dedicated to all of these things. I uh, like the. I can imagine them seeing like, oh, we used to only buy Napa Cab, and now our, our all our bills are grower champagne. What <laughs> yeah, happened? You know, right? That's exactly what's happening. Does anybody need this much wine box? Is this really like a thing? Is this? Yeah, yeah. That's Man, that that all trip that when we went to Weinbach, that was that was definitely a, a a fun moment that just came out of again like a bullshit conversation. We're just talking with Patrick Arledo from Pierre Spar, and he's like, oh, "Come visit me in a few months," and so we did. It's cool. <laughs> you know? It's fun. The, it's the, weird. The, the places these things lead you, you know, you put a microphone in, pe- in front of people and then all of a sudden you're in France. You, know? right. you, uh, you open yourself to possibility and things just happen very quickly is what it seems like. So, you know, uh, what's that uh, Jim Carrey movie that, that can't say no or whatever. And it's uh, like, yeah. yeah, things can snowball if, if you're willing to let it, it, it and it can be fun, you know? Um, Man, this has been a blast. This has been, again, quite an honor. Uh, about two years ago, one of the guys that I sell wine to that uh, is curating a shop down here that is, for the most part, one of the neater shops and has a different perspective than any other place in Delaware. Uh, I had no success getting into selling to him, and I asked him one day. What's the name of the day, shop? The name of it is Swig, S-W-I-G. Was he on one of your early episodes? Yeah, he was on, like, number six. I was going to say, I remember hearing him. Yeah, he that that was like a four and a half hour long episode that I had to like really condense because we the the drinks were flowing. We were having a good time. Um, That's why you hire a producer. <laughs> exactly. <There you> go. <laughs> but he was saying, you know, uh, if you want to get more stuff into my shop, you need to listen to Shift Drink because it's the most important podcast out there. If you can understand why it's important, we'll do better. And I went from doing. $500 a year to I'm on pace to do like 70 grand with him right now. So that's crazy. Uh, I wonder what it is that we're talking about that like, like struck a chord with him. It's like, cause on our end of it, it's just like, we just sit down with microphones and we sometimes have a loose template where we're going. And very often I don't, um, I'll probably do a little Wikipedia search and I might search other podcasts, you know, like there's some tricky interviews out there, man. Um, like when you interview somebody like, Jeff Berry, and I know famously that <laughs> that's our infamous episode. <clears throat> the only but, blurry picture, too. Oh, yeah. Was, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that, that's not that's not bullshit either. Like, that's the only picture that exists of that evening. Um, and I don't remember it being taken. Um, but, like, he's been asked everything. Like, it's all been asked. It's, it's like you can – and you can hear it in the first half of that episode, like, as hammered as he was – 
um, that he he's answered the question so many times that he he got through them. It might have been a little slurred, but he got through them because he's it's just kind of programmed in. And it was like that second half hour when we kind of it you know hit the fan. But it gets tricky, you know. When I did that interview with like Sven Kirsten or Brother Cleave, um, I know that's all tiki people, but or even Richard Seal, you know, it's like where do you start? The, the questions have been asked a million times, and it's it's hard to figure out, you know, a what you want to ask, and b to let the conversation lead itself where it needs to go, you know. And again. I mean, I spent a ton of money getting a degree to learn how to do exactly that and then forgot it all, and now I'm having to relearn it, <laughs> you know? I, I think in this, you know, in the article that's, uh, that where he, you know, Arthur just describes you as a guy that's just genuine, the other thing is that you guys make alcohol, it's not hard to make alcohol fun. A, for, for right. first and foremost, <laughs> it's already pretty fun, but to make it and make it not stuffy. I mean, I being a sommelier, I like selling stuff when I wear tiki shirts because it's like, this is supposed to be fun. Let's keep that in mind. And I think that's something he really gravitated towards. And I stopped saying like, this wine got 98 points and it is 27% skin contact. And it was just like, this is really good. You should try this. This is pretty, yeah. pretty badass. That was what drew me to Arthur. Cause I hadn't really known Arthur for all that long. When we started the show, we had, maybe known each other for two, three years up to that point, but I met him um, initially when he started bringing in um, some mezcales into for us to taste. And yeah, it was just, you know, he was a few inches from Master Sam. That's a whole nother story. Um, but the, you know, the kind of just nonchalance that he spoke about these things of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's this and it's that, and it's just kind of still, and it's this percentage of that, but you know, but, you know, there's F-bombs dropped in every other sentence. And, um, you know, he was just kind of irreverent. And it's what attracts people to him. Like, you know, he's tried wines that none of us will ever try. You know, right. he's had stuff in his glass that we would, we've would we only heard about. And it's fun to hear him talking about some of that stuff because he's like, it's shit. It, you know, some of these things you like that we that we glorify, he's like, I've had it. It's it's shit. Like, people just talk about it because it's rare, you know. Right. And it's, it's fun to hear that stuff. The... Um, to be able to sell wine and make a Highlander reference is probably something only he can, you know? <laughs> Yeah, man, his references are hilarious. So I haven't talked to him in a little while. I need to uh, reach back out after this whole shit started. I think, you know, we've reached out to each other a couple times here and there, but it's it's tough, you know. It, I don't know. It's just, it's a hard time, you know, getting through the day, especially because it's I'm experiencing this, like, COVID crisis in a very different way than most people because um, I'm still working I'm in a restaurant, which most restaurants are closed. I mean, my other three are closed. And so, and then we had to kind of flip our, our model on its head by, you know, running. I'm like right, running a drive-thru effectively. It's like I'm going right. right back to McDonald's when I was 16, like working at a drive-thru, running food out. And so my days are still spent inside the restaurant, except there's everything's quiet. I've gotten to the point where I don't even listen to music in there anymore. I just sit there. And I wait for seven hours for about an hour and a half of business that kind of keeps the lights on during that hour and a half of like Grubhub and DoorDash and all this shit that I hate. But, you know, it's what we got to grind through to to make it happen. And that's that's where, I mean, that's what we're all faced with. And, you, you know, we talk about the new normal. New normal is doing whatever it takes to keep the, the doors open. And so, um, you know, I see this as an opportunity that we have the opportunity to stay open so that if, you know, we get into a tight spot, at Rook or Black Market or the Inferno Room that, you know, we've we've tried to at least 
take the burden off of Siam Square so that that's not an additional consideration um, so that it frees up a little bit of cash flow. Hopefully. That's the idea anyway. See, look at that, man. That's a plan right there. You got it. <laughs> yeah. You're ready to roll. No, to work every day, open to close. That's the plan. You know, if it's, but, you're turning it into like a fast food restaurant, you just need to get, instead of a Fez, you just need to get one of those paper, a paper <laughs> boat hat Fez. And, feeling pretty close to it. That's, I mean, it was easy, you know, when you're 17. At, at 44, it's, it's less easy. Like, yeah. I've got, you know, my feet are taped up every day with sports tapes, try to, you know, I've got mats upon mats, try to take the pressure off my feet and... It's you know, almost it shape. <laughs> it's like eleven thirty and you're drinking coffee. You know, there's yeah, it's a yeah. It's, but I mean, I, I mean, these kind of hours, like I mean, we're sitting here. What's like eleven fifteen at night? I mean, these these are the hours that I'm typically awake anyway. Um, I'm a night owl, so it's been an adjustment to like be up super early and at work super early. Um, I usually didn't like to come in before like eleven <laughs> before. And now I'm in there pretty early and, and they're pretty late. I mean, every day is like, what, 13, 14 hours. And then on top of whatever paperwork I might have to do. Well, last thing I want to talk about before I let you get to your family time and decompress, how excited are you for a virtual Tiki Oasis in Arizona? Or Yes, all this is going to be weird, man. So it's weird because so Hookie Lao just called it yesterday. They just announced that they aren't doing the event and they're going to try to put together some Hookie Lao on tour. And that was... That's the one we were looking very much forward to Arizona. In fact, that was supposed to be happening right now. Like I got the, the calendar alert today, like the, get on your flight. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> didn't happen, obviously, um, for the Arizona Oasis. But what I was discussing with Chris earlier today is that it was he wasn't able to go to uh, Enohaley in uh, Atlanta because we were short staffed and he just made the judgment call to stay home. Um, just in case it got busy and so he could be there to bail out. And I went cause he went to on a few trips last year that I couldn't go on. So it was kind of my turn and it's weird that that ended up probably being maybe the only Tiki event this year. I mean, obviously there's still a plan to do, uh, Oasis and then, um, well the Arizona Oasis, but over uh, Halloween weekend, but you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how many people are going to be able to do an August thing. I don't, we don't even know if the country's going to be able to do an August thing. So it, it's weird, man. Like that may that second year only for the event in Atlanta, you know, for that to happen and maybe it feasibly being the only one that happens this year. I was lucky to be able to go there. I mean, hell it was like two weeks before the country shut down and we right. were having communal drinks. That was dumb. <laughs> yeah, he got like a, he got like a box of drinks to your room, right? He like Jason Alexander. Didn't he bring like a? Oh yeah, Jason brought a bunch up, and then we were at Trader Vic's the night before. Uh, Jason and I and Lee Edwards from House Alpins, um, because he was in Atlanta, and their all spice dram is legit. Got it. I remember who else was with us? Um, well, we were with Sven Kirsten. Um, and then I mean, it, it, over the course of the night, there was a whole bunch of other people kind of came in and out, but it started. Oh, Dave Hansen. Um, Lake Tiki Woodcrafts that works with the Inferno Room. So yeah, he was with us and then we'd got a photo and by the time the photo actually made it up on the Instagram feed, people were like, hey, dumbass. I'm like, <laughs> I have to be clear, at the time, it didn't seem as dumb. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we ended up lucky. Nobody spread it to anyone while we were in Atlanta, luckily. Well, that, that could be disastrous. Uh, you know, uh, I think 151 is probably pretty disinfectant, so probably the Tiki crowd's yeah probably safe yeah. you know it was cool i'd never been to a trader fix that's my first time so i'm you know 
as deep as we've gotten into this, I'd never been to a Trader Fix. It was pretty, that's an amazing location too. That, that yeah. Atlanta location is beautiful. I yeah. didn't realize it was so untouched. It's one of like, I mean, it's, it's original. It's beautiful. Yeah. I, I gotta, I, I was just about to say, I gotta get out more, not realizing how insensitive that was to say right, right now, but like, <laughs> um, but no, when I was you... thinking about that today. Like, I mean, I, I was like, oh, I need to get back to New York. I'm like, Pfft. I mean, same uh, thing, right? Like, right? A, traveling, B, New York, you know, and C, doing the things that I like to do that are very communal. So, yeah, it's it's hard to wrap your head around that that part of the new normal. Well, the last trip my wife and I took was like, oh, my God, five years ago, and we went to Three Dots and a Dash. That's so a cool maybe part. now when we get to reopen, yeah, I had to, I had to palm some money in some hands just to get in. We got in, spent about 100 bucks on two drinks, and then we're out in about 30 minutes. Yeah. Amazing, super, super cool. Like, holy God, it, it, it set a whole lifestyle in motion. Um, but when the outpost is open, we'll my, my wife and I will come down and visit you, man, and try and say, Look, you made it through, you know, it's yeah, all gonna it's, be all right. It's gonna be fun. We, you know, it's just like I've said on the podcast before the podcast is my escape from like the daily grind, and the focus on the outpost has kind of been our escape from the the worry of where are the loans and you know, what are we going to do when we reopen and are people going to come? And so it's, it's put us back into that mind state or, you know, where we were building out originally build outs, always fun, you know, yeah. especially in a tiki bar, you know, like, hey, should we put a skull there? Should we, you know, hang some thatch there? And so it's, it's always more fun doing that stuff. Right. One skull let's put nine skulls there. Oh, uh, we got hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ed, I'm going to stop the recording. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate all that you've done. Um, thank you for being your time and for being so humble and being a cool uh, steward of not only this format of education, but also um, giving me your time because you didn't have to do that. You don't know me from, you know, anyone I know, else. I guess know me either, so. Well, <laughs> I, I appreciate it, man. I really do. Yeah.